This week on the Backtable podcast. It's not always pluses. Listen, with mentoring comes problems. You have people who you're working with, they're doing projects. They're going to have family troubles. They're going to have illnesses of their own. They're going to have illnesses in their family. They're going to have breakups that happen along the way. And you have to be there. You can't just be like, I just want to take all the good from you. And if it's a bad situation, go speak to your therapist, go speak to your counselor, go speak to your family. I am not there for you. So you got to take the good with the bad and when you sort of build that bond as a mentor as a friend as a colleague as a person that they can rely on knowing that they can trust you with their careers with their goals i think that's when the relationship truly begins Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Backtable podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and at backtable.com. This is Aditya Bagrodia as your host this week, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Ranjith Ramasamy from University of Miami, and Farah Rahman, who is doing the Miami Andrology Research Scholars Program down in Miami, and she's currently a medical student at Loyola. Ranjith, Farah, thanks for joining us today. How are you all doing? Thanks so much, Aditya. Thanks for having us on the podcast, and really excited to do this with both with you as well as with Farah. I'd like to echo everything Dr. Ramasamy said. Thank you so much for having us tonight. I've got to say, I'm lucky to interview medical students pursuing a career in urology, and anybody coming out of Miami, and many people coming from other institutions that have interfaced with Miami, uniformly tell me what a wonderful experience it is to be a part of a team, to be a part of a group, to have mentorship with longevity that, that really comes from something that Ranjit's built down there. And over the course of today, we're really going to try to dig into building and inspiring a team. How does that work kind of from a practical nuts and bolts perspective? Maybe just to kick off, Ranjit, how did Team Ramasamy come to be? So it's actually Ramasamy team. We actually had a debate about whether this is going to be Team Ramasamy or Ramasamy team. I'm not kidding. We started this. It was like, no, it has the, it just sounds better with Ramasamy team. But anyway, long story short, you know, when we go through medical school, residency and fellowship, we were always surrounded by peers. We were surrounded by people who we could discuss ideas, bounce ideas off of, tell us when we're doing something wrong, tell us when something is not going to work out. And when I started my career as a faculty member, I was actually pretty surprised that I didn't have peers around me. I had colleagues who were all going off and doing their own thing because they were busy seeing patients and operating. And I had a lot of staff who supposedly were working with me, my administrative assistant, my surgical scheduler, my advanced practice provider, nurses in the operating room, and residents who only saw me anytime I operated because that's when they actually interfaced with you. And I suddenly felt lonely. And I said, I came to an academic institution hoping to actually like discuss ideas, bounce ideas off of peers, be in a team environment, and I felt lonely. And I told myself, I came here and then didn't go into private practice and I wanted to come to academics because I wanted to be surrounded by self, by peers, by medical students, by residents, by fellows. This is the saga of academic medicine that we were all promised to, that we all grew up with. And suddenly when I actually started the job, none of that was true. And so I told myself, I'm going to basically surround myself with a lot of people. And so for that, I actually started with 
a few people. And I said the easiest people that would always come with, to me and ask me for help and I could help out were going to be medical students. I said, let me at least start helping them and mentoring them. And it really, when I started off work here at the University of Miami now about seven years ago, it started off with medical students who were actually not interested in urology at all. And it went from mentoring one or two students to now being a large team. So really the primary interest was to surround myself with people, people who can challenge me, people who can ask me questions, people who can, who can allow me to think critically about problems. So that's sort of the origin of the Ramsami team. You know, a lot of that resonates. And I think reflecting back on my own career, there are certain programmatic things that you may or may not have dialed into or, or have any control over. A very simple example would be, do surgeons' lounges include attendings, fellows, residents, and trainees? Right. I've been in environments when they do and when they don't. When they do, you're already kind of in that culture. You're engaging, you're interacting, you're talking. But if you don't, it rapidly becomes, I'm sitting at my computer, I'm handling my end basket, I'm checking my email, and then I'm doing my next case, and you kind of get on with it. So I, I can appreciate that. And it sounds like this was kind of a realization that you had somewhere early on in your career. But were there any examples of this that you'd observed prior to that you were like, I want to have my practice and my career develop more like that person or that group? I think in residency and in fellowship, we sort of worked with mentors who, who had us right? As mentees, as residents and fellows, and we would work with them and, and it would always be as a group if there's a resident and we would work with a fellow and the resident and the fellow would like, you know, be sitting around chatting with the attending, discussing papers, research projects, and so on. So I think we sort of saw, saw that a little bit in our own practices. But then even early on when I was a resident and when I was a fellow, I was always very interested in, in mentoring. That was something that, was, that I knew that I was very passionate about very early on when, when we started urology. And I used to work with medical students and even when I was a resident. I mean, as a PGY2, I still remember I used to get first, second year medical students who used to come shadow us and like take them off, buy them a coffee because that's all I could afford as a PGY2 resident. And then I used to teach, uh, you know, from the AUA medical student curriculum. And I absolutely enjoyed doing it on my post-call day. <laughs> And, you know, when people like normally just go home and, and rest after their post-call day, I used to like, oh, just teach them for an hour and then like grab a coffee. And so when I became an attending, I was like, you know what, let me just start like that. You know, let me see if this, this would be a feasible approach to work. That, and that's how it started. So, so I guess I sort of had that interest and passion early on, which I just sort of built a lot more now as an attending and, and obviously had the ability to help them. Because as a resident, I couldn't help much other than like helping them out with projects and manuscripts and so on. But as an attending, you're able to sort of see our own careers develop over time and sort of be able to help them and guide them in where they want to get to. You've kind of talked a little bit about having a team-based approach to, to research and clinical care, being involved with that. You alluded to early on that at some point there was a decision made to go from a mentor, something that's engaged with like multiple individuals to more of a team-based approach. And maybe I'll ask you to reflect a little bit on the first team member or that mentality shift to I'm mentoring students, residents, fellows, maybe junior faculty to I'm creating a team. One of the first few students that I still remember wanted to go into anesthesia, but I was teaching a genetics class on reproductive genetics and male fertility genetics at the University of Miami. And he approached me and said, I'm doing a project up around Sami. I don't really have any interesting ideas, but I'd love for you to help me. He told me he was interested in anesthesia, but this is all I have, right? Beggars can't be choosers. So I said, great, come on along. Let me help you with the project. 
I don't have, I am seeing 10 patients a week in clinic. I don't have many things going on, so I'll help you out with it. And it just happened that I was able to help him with it. And he did a, such a fantastic job. Would have loved for him to go into urology, but still is actually a practicing anesthesiologist now. He then took on the role of, there was another student that came along and said he was able to help him along. And I quickly grabbed onto this idea of peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, wherein now I was able to see sort of the fruits of labor sort of give back, wherein he was able to help other people. And I said, hey, why not, you know, I don't have to like directly mentor everybody. So people who come in and ask for help, as long as I can help a few people directly, maybe they can also pay it forward and help other people. So this quickly developed into being a team because now not only was, was I surrounded by people who had come along in their medical school careers and, and residency careers and even fellowship to like not just learn some of the basics of research, writing projects and, and preparing manuscripts, but they were also in a position to help other people through with their projects. And so I think that's when the idea sort of hit my mind and I said, hey, this is more than just like a one-to-one -one mentoring. I don't think I should be doing everything directly on my own, but I should sort of help some people who can help other people. And I think that's where the whole concept of one person mentoring one student went from going from just one person to like now mentoring and guiding a whole team. Yeah, I think this idea of paying it forward, you know, when I see fourth year medical students that still take active participation once they've matched and so on in the, say, urology student interest group, that's always very moving to me that they continue to pay it forward. In the same breath, there's always a little bit of a push and pull. Many people are, especially at the student level, interested in maximizing their visibility productivity to get to the next step, which is matching into urology. So are there expectations that are kind of set in terms of paying it forward, the way the team works, keeping it collegial ultimately? No, absolutely. So I think the, the pay it forward, I don't expect them to do. I think that's something innate that needs to be in you. And, and you, you want to give back because you feel like you've gotten so much from the team that you feel like you need to contribute as well. That's, that's not an expectation. But just the initial expectations, I think, are very, very clear. And I set that very clear. Because for as many students and residents and fellows that you see on the team, there are also many people who have tried to sort of be part of the team and join the team who haven't made it to the team. And I think we just all have to recognize that not everyone is as motivated and interested and passionate as we are. Some people can contribute and some people are interested and motivated, and I'm willing and go above and beyond to try and help them out with as much as I can, as much time as I can, with as much resources as I can. But not everybody sort of, you know, fits that mold and, and wants to be part of a team. And some people just working in silos. And I think those people are just, are just much harder. But in terms of paying it forward, I don't think there's expectations. I think it's sort of a team-based culture where now uh, people who think who have benefited from the team, for example, either somebody helped them to do with their statistics, somebody helped them to write the paper, and then they feel like now they need to give back because they have sort of used the resources of the team to sort of now be able to give it back forward. So I think initially the word expectations is very important. I think that's very critical to mentoring and mentoring success and mentee success where there are initial expectations that are set and they are very clear and if they are met, they sort of continue being part of the team and contribute to the team, but there's certainly no expectations on the back end to pay it forward. So maybe just to get the other perspective, Farah, you know, at some point, I think you were probably a second year medical student, were interested in pursuing a career in urology, looking for a year off and maybe an early interest in andrology. As you were kind of looking at opportunities that exist throughout the country, 
What was it about the Mars program that was attractive to you? I had never thought about it as peers versus colleagues until Dr. Ramasamy said that just now. I have a lot of peers at Loyola, but I don't have too many colleagues or medical students in my year or the year below me who are pursuing urology. So the Mars program was unique in that it wasn't just one person. It was going to be multiple mentees that were going to be coming along. And then on top of that, I had a phenomenal interview with the previous Mars scholar, Paris Diaz, who told me the ins and outs and all the pros of taking this year at the University of Miami with Dr. Ramasamy. And it included clinical training, surgical training, hands-on mentorship, guidance. And I come from an institution that does have a home urology program, which I'm very fortunate for. But something about the Mars program sounded a little bit different. And I think the more I looked into it, I noticed this heavy emphasis on collaboration and not just in medical students that would be near your age, but fellows, residents, other attendings, cross country, to be honest. And that was something I had not seen done before and was really excited to be a part of. Absolutely. Actually, I I interviewed Paris for residency not too long ago, and he kind of shared a story about driving to an offsite clinic maybe once a week or so. And the whole time was basically phone calls, touching base with various students, residents, fellows, and so on and so forth to kind of gel it together. And maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, the actual nuts and bolts mechanics. Are there, you know, there's kind of mentee-mentor relationships that I think have to happen at some regularity. There's got to be monitoring of projects. There's got to be progress reports, works in progress, things along those lines. Can you talk a little bit just about some of the mechanics, some of the infrastructure to be so productive? I think the one thing that I don't have is set timings on when people can ask me questions, set timings on when people can email me, set timings of how they can reach out to me. I don't. That's sort of very fluid. They can reach out to me anytime they want, and I will get back to them at my earliest convenience. So there are very rarely, unless I'm actually sitting down and discussing some sort of a project with them, trying to teach them a statistical technique, or trying to teach them some sort of writing proposals or protocols and so on, where I think I need some sort of a scheduled time one-on-one, I almost rarely have one-on-one meetings with, with anybody on the team. And so because it's very fluid, the expectations are actually very low in terms of when and how they can reach me. People do everything from direct messaging me on Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook, message me, text me, call me, email me. So just any mode of communication. So when I will get back to them as soon as I possibly can. And I think that's that's one thing that I've sort of heard from the mentees all the time is Dr. Ramasamy, if we send you a question, we can get back, you get back to us as as soon as you possibly can, which sort of helps us keep moving along our projects along, our ideas along, and they don't get stalled because when we email you or contact you, you always get back to us. And other people that don't, sort of we lose interest in the project. And then by the time they answer us, we've lost interest in the project and we focused on other things in life. And so I think, especially in this generation where everything is instant, I feel like people want answers and responses back very quickly. And in terms of project focus and updates, people who have come to my research meeting would know we do it on a monthly basis. On the third Tuesday every month, Tafar actually organizes it this year, and we discuss all of the project updates. It's a, it's a huge Excel file with all of the project updates, who's working on every project and what the project has gone along. During the month, obviously, I sort of keep tabs on when time I'm free, I sort of open the Excel file 
and sort of send emails and, and WhatsApp messages out, say, asking for updates and so on. But that's sort of the only formal research infrastructure that we've built in where people come in with expectations to sort of give us an update. And usually around the time of the meeting, I get a lot of like, oh, I'm sending this email today. I am writing this paper tomorrow and submitting the paper the next day and so on. But at least it holds both the mentees and me sort of accountable that, that some, some update needs to be given at that. Otherwise, the project gets deleted. That's the expectation, at least that I have in sort of a fluid way in which people can communicate with me. Yeah, I think it's an important point about approachability and accessibility. You know, sometimes a medical student interested in research will shoot me an email that, hey, I'd love to hear what you're up to and see if there's opportunities to work together. And then I'll loop in my administrator and they get like a meeting response for like eight weeks down the way. I'm like, oh my God, this is ridiculous. Like, all right, here's my cell phone number. Text me whenever you're free and, you know, we'll chat and kind of come up with something. Or the easiest thing, Aditya, I just bring them to the OR, the clinic. Sure. There's always downtime in the OR. There's always downtime in the clinic. And usually students and, and residents have more time than us. At least that's what I think. And, and they're very happy to hang out and talk to me about what they're interested in, what their projects, what they want to do, what their time, you know. If it's that's the first meeting ever, I sort of just ask them to come in to the OR. And usually anytime we have downtime in OR and clinics, I sort of fill that time with talking to the student and or the resident who's there. So, so that's what I do. I don't give them a Zoom meeting eight weeks from now. Yeah, no, I think that's important. And certainly with our turnovers, you could have several meetings. So Far, maybe when you were when you were joining, can you talk a little bit about how the idea of becoming a part of this team was brought up? Were there aspects of it that were attractive or intimidating to you? Absolutely. So I think I accepted my research year in December and was given an idea proposal by winter break. And my first meeting was probably in January. And I log on. I really don't know what to expect. And I see about 50 people on this meeting and 73 projects on this Google Sheet. Everybody is just firing off one after another. We're going through different types of research, clinical trials, DEI, Trinet, just many, many subjects. I'm not really sure what's happening, but I'm taking aggressive notes. I'm trying to figure out what I'm interested in and just trying to follow along. And I promise you, I was very intimidated, not really sure what role I would be able to fulfill in this very well-oiled machine that seemed to be doing extremely well without the addition of me. But I was very excited to get started and take something on, make it my own. And I think the best part about Ramasami team is everyone is so welcoming. And so not only is Dr. Ramasami accessible and willing to meet with everybody, I think a major core tenant of our team is that everybody has this collaborative nature. And regardless of you're an M1 or an M4 and it's your first meeting, if you message someone that I'm interested in your project, I'd like to help in some way, they will respond to you and find something for you to do. And that really helped in getting started. I did not foresee that I would be the person leading these meetings, organizing everything. It seemed like this unsurmountable task as an M3 sitting in Chicago and all the magic is happening in Miami. But once again, the magic of a existing structure that's already so strong in its foundations is that it can take the addition of new levels without shaking. So we continue to build and it continues to get taller and we expand, but we're very strong in our foundations. So it sounds pretty good. It's a good gig. 
I would recommend. Pretty high fives all around, but I've got to imagine every now and again, you've got to engage a little bit in conflict resolution where a lot of people have contributed to a big project or maybe a project starts taking on a kind of big life of its own and you've got fellows, you've got residents, you've got students, maybe even some pre-med folks. How does that happen? And, and maybe I'll just throw this out there. Anytime I've got multiple people involved in a project, I try it at the get-go to set clear expectations about what everybody's role is going to be so there's not any hurt feelings, misgivings, feelings of slightedness. Maybe maybe share an example without, of course, divulging personal information on what it hasn't been perfect. Oh, absolutely. So I think, let's say we start off, I think that's probably the best Aditya, I don't think there's any other better way to, to say that. I think citing expectations is key. Communicating those expectations is key to let people know that what they're responsible for, I think, is also very, very important. An example of when things didn't go right would and, and we had to change things around would be, let's say, a project lead takes on a project and has worked on the project but hasn't done much to the project. And then this other person who comes along and is like, Tafram Sami, I want to help out on a project. And I tell him or her, hey, this project has sort of gone halfway through, but they've not been able to complete it fully. And then so basically, let's say they take it and finish the project and enough that it's now ready to be submitted to a manuscript. I go back and tell the person who started the project, hey, you started this. You were unfortunately because of X, Y and Z reason. We're not able to finish this. I think this person needs to take the lead and likely be the first author. And if they are not acceptable, they, that's just bad because they didn't finish the project and now they have at least an opportunity to be a middle author than not an author at all. And so that's how I've done this. And I'm fairly, I've unfortunately done it too many times, but in large teams and collaborations, I'm fairly certain this is a very commonly occurring scenario. But I think setting expectations is key. If projects don't go forward or if the person who is responsible for it is unable to complete the task because of hopefully a legit reason, then letting them know that they're going to be taking the back seat and someone else is going to drive this project forward, I think is very important. Yeah, I think that's an important component of it is to really understand what's going on with the person, you know, whether that's professional duties, personal, God knows what, that typically these are going to be highly motivated individuals that have excelled in basically everything they've done. They're used to getting things across the finish line. And when that doesn't happen, the default shouldn't be there's something wrong with that person. Maybe more, let me dig into to confirm that there's nothing bigger than the project wrong with the person. I think that's really an important aspect of it. I think it's really helpful that we chat so often and I think you loop in with your mentees and project leads, I would say at least once a week. There's no drop off. It's not, as we say, that someone usually goes dark. We touch base with people really frequently to avoid this and to catch it in its early stages. Which is why I think it's more rare, at least on the mentee side, than I may perceive. Yeah, that's critical. But I guess, I mean, this this kind of dovetails into, you know, if people are really kind of pulling their weight, check in on them, make sure they're doing okay, make sure they're still kind of getting where they're going and wishing the best of luck. And anytime I have a mentee come to me, you know, first thing I tell them, I, I told you this too, Farah, this is about you, it's not about me. These are some of the things I've got going on. I'm way more interested in what you're passionate about, what you're interested in, because I think that's what's ultimately going to motivate people. And believe it or not, most people don't have a burning deep desire to go into testis cancer research, despite my best efforts. And that's okay. I think that kind of comes on with mentorship. So it sounds like you've got infrastructure, organized monthly meetings, the whole gang, whoever can make it, recognizing people are busy, then a lot of fluid time. And, you know, do you set 
time for that? I mean, this has got to be somewhat time intensive to touch base, communicate, or is that just something that kind of fills in the cracks? No, I wish I could say I set time for it. I like to do it in between work. For example, like today was an OR day and we did about four or five cases. If there was enough time in between the OR cases to sort of, you know, catch up on those things, shoot some emails, shoot some texts, especially in academic medicine. I think if we sort of set clinic time, OR time, research time, family time, I understand there has to be boundaries. And I think we're all very respectful of at least, I at least respect the home versus work boundary. But when I go to work, I do not respect the work boundary that today is an OR day and I'm all I'm going to do is only operate. I do not do that. In between cases, when I'm waiting for, and when I'm going between rooms or, you know, at turn, or during turnover times, I'm always texting people, right, correcting papers. While the case is getting started and, and the fellows are, are, are starting to help open the case, I'm always writing something, writing a blog, writing, correcting something else, asking what the project is happening. So I think at work, I sort of don't have research hat, clinic hat, OR hat, uh, mentoring hat. I don't do that. But I think that thinking I've sort of taken that off. Uh, it is a work hat and I could be doing anything at work at any given time. And when I'm at home, it's a home hat. And, and that's the only boundary that I have. You know, that's the way I typically operate. And um, sometimes I kind of reflect on pros and cons. Like for instance, at the end of the case, when things are getting wrapped up, I'm usually like, all right, I'm gonna go to my office, which is in the cancer center, mostly so I don't fume at the turnover times. But I, I do miss sometimes getting lunch with the residents and the students and things along those lines, which are, you know, an important going back to like being engaged with the team or same thing in the clinic, you know, it's like, I got to go and start prepping for the afternoon clinic as soon as the morning clinic's over. But I, I totally agree. I mean, I've seen people and I'm, I'm not passing judgment. I think people work in different ways, pleasure reading during between cases and that's all possible, right? I think that, I think the reason we're doing this podcast is to sort of educate people who want to build a team you know, who want to grow a team around them, who want to build infrastructure around them that they can be happy with, right? At some point, I actually love doing these things. This is not, nobody asked me to do this. Nobody told me this was not in my contract. This, in fact, it almost never gives out our views, right? So all of this is just, at some point, we all have to do something that makes us happy. And I think this makes me happy. And if pleasure reading is what makes you happy, you should 100% be pleasure reading, not worry about building a Ramasamy team. I think that distinction has to be made very clear. But I think in people who want to try to do this, and a lot of people, it's funny that we're doing this podcast because at the end of every grand round stock that I give, no matter what topic it is on, fertility, sexual dysfunction, COVID, the one question that I always get asked is, how did you build the Ramasamy team? Tell us how this infrastructure is. And so I'm happy that at least all those people who asked me those questions in the last five minutes <laughs> off, the, off the talk. And so I'm happy that they're going to have so much content from your podcast to listen to, to actually do this. But I don't think this is for everybody. Just like wearing multiple hats during the day, trying to wear multiple hats even at work is for everybody. So I think it's for the select few that have interest in this, have passion in this, and actually like and enjoy doing this. Yeah, totally. I mean, as you were speaking, I get asked about passion projects to avoid burnout. And it sounds like you've very much identified your passion project, which is building a team. And I think if I may, that sounds like having an impact on people's careers, inspiring them to really become the best versions of themselves and ultimately becoming productive, moving the field forward to help our patients. And it's it's very, very compelling. Some of this, like, okay, maybe I say, all right, I'm going to start a team tomorrow. And some of it's going to be, I think there's some inherent qualities. And then some of it's going to be things that we can work on a little bit. 
And Farah, you, you've talked about starting out, being a little overwhelmed, and then obviously taking a more substantial role in this particular team. Can you talk a little bit about how you feel like you've grown, developed, educated yourself, and enjoyed the process? I think something I always applaud Dr. Ramasamy for is knowing each mentee's strength and weakness and promoting us in the specific fields which we would excel in. And so I am one of three Mars scholars, and the three of us have very different roles. Catherine is mostly in wet lab doing basic clinical science research, and Marco does our randomized clinical trials, while I do more public health, prospective and retrospective, looking more at biostatistics, DEI, more clinical work. And that's because I have a background in public health with an MPH in health policy, and my colleagues have different research experiences. I would not do well in Catherine's job. Ask me to do a Western blot, I will do the best I can, but I probably would not do as great of a job as she would. And I didn't actually have to say that. I think he took one look at my CV and knew exactly where to put me and where to put the three of us so we could all go on our own journey of growth. And I think that's exactly what's happened over the course of the year. I was tapped specifically to take on a role called Chief of Staff, which really intimidated me. I was like, no way, I can't do it. This sounds very difficult. And I was backed away from the edge of a cliff by my previous chief of staff, Rohit, who was like, no, 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 it's gonna be great. You're gonna be great. Don't overthink this. And I think over the course of the year, I've really made the leadership role my own and I've transformed it into a far version of a chief of staff which is very involved and very meticulous in things that I find important. So just making sure that each team member is valued and celebrated and acknowledged for whatever accomplishment that they have done that week to make sure everybody feels noticed and taken care of. These are the things that make me happy and give me joy, the hat that I wear. And I've made chief of staff to be, I think, a good balance of external liaison and internal liaison. I've met a lot of amazing residents interviewing for fellowship over the year, as well as attendings and collaborators in the field. And now I have to pass the baton on to the next chief of staff, and I'm sure she will transform it into what she thinks the chief of staff should be. But that is the opportunity the Mars Scholarship and Dr. Ramasamy give someone is to promote their strengths, knowing things will change from year to year. But welcoming that adaptation. I think that's one of the biggest faults in mentorship, Aditya. I mean, I've seen people have a project and they go and find a student. And I think that's that's where it is, where then the student has either no interest in it or has no capability of doing that project, but somehow the mentor absolutely wants that project done and square peg round of all analogy. And I think that's where we as faculty and mentors make the biggest mistakes, wherein I sort of do reverse wherein I take the student, I know what they are, know and what they're capable of and try and come up, either hook them onto a project that's ongoing where I think they'd be able to add expertise or something that I can think of for them that I think they, they will do very well in. And I think if we sort of do the reverse mentality, there will be lots of success and productivity all around. Totally. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I'm, you know, the caliber of trainees coming through year over year is just absolutely mind-blowing and exciting. And I think if you take that first two to three minutes to say, hey, what gets you excited? What's your area of expertise? Nearly certainly you're going to 
learn and receive more than you'll ever be able to give. And maybe just kind of providing a little bit of clinical context into their areas of expertise is where the magic happens. Like I wholeheartedly agree. Can I take a second to also acknowledge steering mentees away from things? So Dr. Bagrodi, I recently I had a meeting with you where I was like, give me a euro-oncology project, please. I will distinctly remember this. You said that would be a disservice to you because that is not what you are innately interested in. And I'm very thankful to hear no's sometimes as well. Medical students feel an urge to say yes to everything, but I think the mark of a great mentor and a good leader is to steer us straight sometimes as opposed to running around in a circle. Yeah, I'd like to think I put my money where my mouth is when it comes to this one. And I, I am excited about the couple of things that we've got bubbling up for us should be exciting. So, you know, let's say you're out of practice a couple of years. Now you've trained a handful of fellows. You've been able to positively impact. You've got some infrastructure. Obviously, having a mentored research program takes infrastructure, takes money, and that's all kind of happening. I'd like to shift a little bit towards the benefit of the team and well, maybe branding first you know, what the value is of branding a team? The value of branding a team. I, as a borderline millennial slash Gen Zer, I think there's a lot of power in social media and medicine is actually moving towards the use of TikTok and Instagram and definitely Twitter for our internal uses. But patients are looking at our social media to understand who our provider is. As time moves forward, I think the barrier between providers and patients is breaking down and we want to see more personability with our providers like they are human just like us they have humor they have a personality and so social media is a great way to do this ramasami team is very i would say relevant on social media i think it's quite easy to find us it was one of the first things i noticed as a new mar scholar it was aua and i was not able to go and all i saw was ramasami team ramasami team every tweet and it showed me the depth of the team as an outsider and the absolute powerhouse that it is in when we show up to conferences and the presence we have on a national stage. As a new member, it made me really excited to be invited onto this team. And so I would say branding is crucial and both internally and externally for all of those reasons. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, a part of my academic interest, job, passion projects are, you know, largely based out of social media. And I always kind of feel like I'm dancing that dance of self-promotion versus true pride in what we're doing, trying to promote your brand. You know, I believe that what we do at, for instance, Backtable is useful, it's meaningful, it's valuable, and I want to share it. You know, I don't want to be that guy that anybody I talk to that I'm like, hey, man, have you heard of Backtable Urology? You should check it out. But I also do want to be like, this is an amazing resource. If you can't sit down and read Campbell's or Hinman's or the various kind of millions of things that are out there. So that's kind of a lot to unpack in one question. But Ranjith, why don't you take a stab at value of branding and then maybe dancing that dance? At the end of the day, I don't think as doctors, we should be commodities, right? We're not. We're just not there to like sell a product. We're not trying to convince people to buy a product or to invest in us and so on. So I think the goal, like you said, that you're doing actually a fabulous job with Backtable is we provide the content. We provide the resources. We provide research. We provide data. We provide an infrastructure for mentoring, a model for mentoring. And that's it. And the rest, I think the, the branding will sort of follow that. I think people who just go after just brand, 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 
sort of do it for a bit, but it doesn't last as long. But I think you, people who play the long game, wherein they have a good infrastructure, a good foundation, good content, like yourself with Backtable, I think that will pay off dividends on its own, where you don't have to actively continue to brand it. People will brand it for you. I think that's where I think the secret is, wherein people are finding us from everywhere, like just not across the country, but across the world, trying to come do projects with us, trying to join the research meetings here in the middle of the night of wherever they are, wanting to contribute, wanting to participate, wanting to be part of the team. And I think it grows on its own, wherein all we were not just all about branding, we were about truly mentoring people, growing people's careers, trying to get people where they want to end up. And I think the rest will just happen on its own. Yeah, I mean, it's the product, right? Ultimately, at the end of the day, the branding and so forth is important, but it's the product. And right. in your opinion, what are the key ingredients? The One of the most important hallmarks of mentoring, and I think the way people go wrong is people tend to view it as a barter, as a trade. I'm going to teach you this skill set. You're going to write this paper for me. I am going to give you this database. You're going to or retrospectively review the database and give me an abstract at the end that will hopefully get converted to a paper. And then the relationship ends. You have no idea about who that person is. They have no idea who, who you are. And the project ends, the relationship ends, and there is no mentoring there. And a lot of people think that that's what mentoring is. And I think that we should sort of just focus a little bit outside of that sphere and actually understand who that person is, what they want to achieve, what are they coming to you for? They did not come to you for one project. I guarantee you that. They did not come to you to like learn how to do t-test on chi-squared on Excel. That's not what that student or the resident or the fellow is there for. They are there for you to help them along in their careers. That's their main goal. And unfortunately for us, in our limited time availability and our limited resource availability, we always view them as a project. And so I think if we somehow grow a little bit more and understand about what that person wants, what they eventually want to end up as, what their goals are, what their background is, and just to know them and treat them like a human being. It's not always pluses. Listen, with mentoring comes problems. You have people who you're working with, they're doing projects, they're going to have family troubles. They're going to have illnesses of their own. They're going to have illnesses in their family. They're going to have breakups that happen along the way. And you have to be there. You can't just be like, I just want to take all the good from you and if it's a bad situation, go speak to your therapist, go speak to your counselor, go speak to your family. I am not there for you. So you've got to take the good with the bad. And I think when you sort of build that bond as a mentor, as a friend, as a colleague, as a person that they can rely on, knowing that they can trust you with their careers, with their goals, I think that's when the relationship truly begins and bonds and grows. And that usually lasts for much longer than all of the projects and the databases and the, and the papers that they write for you. Farah, maybe I'll ask you not to put you on the spot with your current friend, colleague, and mentor. Just thinking about this, it goes a little bit beyond just mentorship. It's also sponsorship. It's advocacy. It's, you know, reaching out on one's behalf that, hey, I don't need to give my 85th talk on this. Perhaps I've got somebody here, you know, rising star. Can you maybe share any examples of sponsorship advocacy that, that you feel like you've benefited from? Yes, a very special one comes to mind. So over winter break, Dr. Ramasamy reached out to the leadership at UCSD to let them know that, hey, I have a medical student, her name is Farah. She is one really interested in all things social responsibility, public health, advocacy, health policy, but two is also very interested in applying urology. And I just wanted to put her in touch with you. 
which led to Dr. Manga reaching out to me and not only putting me in touch with amazing attendings such as yourself, but also asking if I was coming to the conference and then offering a spot on a gender equity panel, which I would have never received or been given the honor to be a part of had Dr. Ramasamy not sent that email. Through coming to the UCSD conference, I was able to meet not only like-minded medical students who were a year above me in the application cycle and now are great sources of knowledge on how to do the application, but I was also able to meet attendings from across the country who identify with the things that interest me, which are health policy, health disparities, and advocacy. And so it was this amazing springboard of opportunities based off of one email and truly knowing what drives me and puts a smile on my face when I talk about it. That all came from investing in me as a person and not just as a student who can do SAS and pump out some biostatistics, but knowing what drives me and what motivates me and what 10-year goals I have helped Dr. Ramasamy and I connect the puzzle pieces to get to where I want to go. Yeah, I think that's important. You know, certainly as I've kind of progressed in my career, I was kind of one of those fanatics, you know, nights and weekends for a long, long time and always like to kind of be in the mix. And there's still aspects of that, you know, the same breath. Like, I think there's sometimes a little bit of a shift where you're like, you can really take joy and happiness in the success of others and you don't have to be at the center of it or the epicenter of it. But I think that mentality shifts and that is a, you know, that's a team-based approach. You don't have to be, you know, hitting the home runs or scoring the winning goals. It's you're a part of the team. And when there's success for the team, that's actually what's most fulfilling. So I, I think if I had to summarize, this is, it's actually simple, right? It's just like a patient interaction. They're going to be able to tell if you care, if you're invested, if you spend a minute to know their story, then they go from prostate cancer patient at 11 o'clock or, you know, vasectomy reversal at 10 o'clock to a patient with the story, with their good and their bad and their backstories to somebody that, that you know. And I think that when you kind of are able to develop that relationship, it's way more meaningful per people involved. And similarly, you know, if I had to kind of summarize, it would be that you invest in the people. You take the time to get to know them. You take the time to understand them. There are some administrative things, right? Like keeping tabs on things, an organization, which we could spend some time talking about. But, you know, for somebody that wanted to go out and, you know, really kind of start, maybe they're fresh out of fellowship or fresh out of training and maybe practice, maybe academics, what would be your kind of advice? My advice would be to start small. Don't go in and give a talk to medical student class and ask them all to email you for projects because you're going to get 15 to 20 emails in enough that you can't even handle 15 people because you're a brand new attending and you're like still trying to figure out your own practice and 15 people emailing you for projects where you cannot give 15 people projects because you don't even have that many ideas, thoughts and or patience to be able to like do projects like that. So really start small, find one or two students who are truly interested, passionate, find one or two residents in your program who are interested. If you're able to start, be a part of a fellowship that you're joining. Maybe as a young faculty member, you have a lot more time to sit down with the fellows early on to like teach them on some of the skills that you've learned during fellowship, sort of take them out to dinner, treat them like a human being. And I think looking back, buying that simple coffee for those medical students at Cornell when I was a second year resident, still people talk about it. They're all like plastic surgeons now, but they still talk about it. They like, remember the $1 coffee that you used to buy? And I think it may seem very small to us 
as an attending, it may seem very small to us and not important. But when you're viewing it from their side, it seems the world. You know, for them, when you look at medical students, especially first or second years, they think that we're like 10 steps away. And for us to just give our cell phone numbers to them, they're like, wow, this, this guy is so accessible. He can actually let us text him. And you go back and ask, how many attendings do you actually text with? They will tell you almost no one. And even simple things like that go such a long way. I mean, we're scared to give cell phone numbers because we think we're going to be abused by those cell phone numbers and abused with text messages. But really, I mean, and even with patients, you know, as much as we are scared, I think trying to be accessible, trying to be approachable and trying to invest small, the team will grow. I promise you, I have seen it grow. It grows so much that Farah was saying that we need to cut out a few names because we have too many people joining on a Zoom call for one hour. And so it will grow. It will organically grow as long as other people looking at it from the outside see success of the mentees. They're able to take something small and make it big. And now they want to join and they want to be part of a team and they are inspired by it. My best advice to all of the young faculty out there who are trying to start their research careers, starting to start mentoring careers, start small. Invest in one or two people teach them something, inspire them, and let them be mentors in their own right and help younger students and our residents along to grow. And then at some point, they will pay it forward. Not everybody will do it. Some will come and, and leave and you will never hear from them again. And so this is not going to happen with everybody. But you will identify those select few that you can keep with you and can grow them along as you grow along in your own careers. And I think you said it very well. Once the team succeeds, you succeed. And people who are passionate will stick with you. And those are the people that you'll take along for the rest of your life. Yeah, I like that. I like that. And, you know, maybe as we kind of approach an hour here, Farah, perhaps I'd ask your thoughts on what has been the most valuable, fulfilling parts of being a part of the team. Before I answer that, if I could just echo, I think, like Dr. Ramasamy said, making someone feel special in a field that feels very quick to be critical and as a medical student, of course, you should welcome criticism. We know very little in comparison to others. But that one compliment, that one acknowledgement, that one coffee really changes how someone who is lesser in experience than you views themselves and views their capabilities moving forward. And so those small things add up to the little cricket that could. You know what I mean? It really doesn't take a lot, but it takes nurturing, I think, and patients. Absolutely. We recently had the Western section in Hawaii, which is a pretty sweet perk of being in California. And a couple of students, there weren't funds for them to go and present their work and thought about it. I was like, you know what, I'm just going to dip into my travel funds and basically sponsor them. And they've, they've done a tremendous job. Really, the impetus was like, hopefully this could be something that just inspires them and excites them to, again, you know, be the best version of themselves, get involved wherever they may go. That was a bigger thing, and, and that was pretty unusual kind of as at a scale, but they were really that remarkable. And I was like, I want them to remember this time that they went there and they presented their work, that a blast. And could that be the difference between academics or not? Or fast forward to a couple of years and you're thinking about jobs, like getting a call, where should I go? And I don't know, it seems worth it. I think in general, you can't go wrong if you show a little bit of appreciation. Yeah, and it sounds cheesy of me to say this, but I recently filled out a survey on mentorship about Dr. Ramasamy internally for the University of Miami. And within the comments, I really said that being a Mars scholar changed the trajectory of my career in ways that I probably do not even know yet. 
And it seems like a tall ask for third year med students to take a year off and spend it in a different city away from everyone in a field you don't have that much exposure to. But Paris Diaz said it best last year. And he said, if I could do it again, I would do it again in a heartbeat. And this year of mentorship and guidance, both personally as a friend, as a physician, as a someone older than me in the community has shaped me to be a different person. And I hope to be a lifelong mentee of Dr. Ramasamis. Yeah, I love that. Rajith, maybe, you know, you could share a little bit about what's been most fulfilling about this whole journey for you. I think really watching people succeed has probably been the best aspect of this. Watching people match, coming back and telling me, Dr. Ramasamy, we could not have done this without your help. I have medical students who I used to work with as fellows who are now getting ready to apply for andrology fellowship. You know, they've gone through, they've matched into urology, they've gone through residency, and now they're ready, getting ready to apply for fellowship. And, and they've been working with me throughout their medical school and residency and, and now coming to ready for apply for fellowship. I mean, it's so fulfilling to see people go along with their careers. And I think as much as we think about our careers, our success and our trajectories, I think it, it's nice to bring other people along. And I think people who sort of rise with you, it's always very fulfilling to see their successes, but it's nice to see the team success more than just individual successes. Yeah, one quote that I really loved that I learned from Chris Kane when he was talking about creating teams is, when you go alone, you go fast. When we go together, we go far. Yeah, that one always kind of resonates with me, that sometimes it takes a little bit more time, takes a little bit more energy, a little bit more coordination, but the end product is oftentimes unrecognizable and remarkable. And fulfilling, right? If we just wanted to see patients collect RBUs and, and take salary, we would not be doing academic urology, right? You would not be doing back table urology. I think we all wanted to do something different with our lives more than just treat patients. And I think where it makes a difference is if that extra effort that we put in actually keeps us and hopefully makes us happy. Yeah, well, hey, Ranjit and Farah, you know, I really appreciate you guys taking some time out of your evening there on the West Coast to share your thoughts on team building, some of the trials, tribulations, and of course, the value that you all have received. Any any parting thoughts as we wrap down? All that I want to say is I, I think people should view life as it happens, as something that they should do it together with other people. At home, we do this with a family. And at work, I feel we need to create a team. And so we love coming home because we see a family to ourselves and, and, the, and the, we should love going to work because we should also see our team as a family where there's happiness. There's people who want to see you, who want you to come into work because they want to seek your help. And I think that's what makes a family life fulfilling. And hopefully that's what should also make work life fulfilling. I love that. I love that. Well, hey, thanks again, uh, Ranjit and Farah. You guys have a wonderful evening. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, DM us at underscore Backtable on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable is hosted by Aditya Bagrodia and Jose Silva. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Thanks again for listening and see you next week.